Well, greetings again to everybody out there from Sprott Money News at SprottMoney.com. It's now 2022, January 25th, 2022, as I record this. This is your first monthly wrap-up segment of the year. I'm your usual host, Craig Hemke, and joining us to kick off 2022 is our old friend, Rick Rule. Many of you are familiar with Rick. Uh, I know a lot of you have sent in questions for Rick, so I look forward to speaking with him. Rick, welcome back. Always good to talk to you. Craig, thank you for having me back. Uh, I hope that uh, for you and your listeners, this is both a happy and a prosperous new year. Yeah, so far at least. Uh, And hey, look, everybody out there, just keep in mind, this information is provided free of charge by your friends at Sprott Money. All they ask in return is that maybe you shoot them a like uh, you share this link, you subscribe to Sprott Money on whatever channel you're listening to. That will help them cast an even wider net as we go through the year. Uh, I think that's a pretty low cost thing for you to do. Just uh, send them a like, send them a subscribe and, uh, and help them out and help us get the word out about physical uh, sound money and uh, precious metals. Uh, Rick, it has been quite the start to the year. Uh, the stock market in the U.S. gyrating like crazy, flirting with one of the worst Januaries it's ever had. Seems like much of this uh, volatility is predicated on uh, the first FOMC meeting of the year, which is in progress as you and I record here on uh, Tuesday the 25th. All this stuff out there, Rick, that we've seen before, uh, whether it was 2010 or 2018, you know, about, oh, yeah, the Fed's going to be hiking interest rates and rates are going to normalize. They're going to draw down the balance sheet. And it never seems to happen. But everybody's falling for it again. Uh, what do you what do you how do you look at this? This kind of macro picture, monetary picture as the year begins. Craig, I'm frankly surprised that the volatility is sustained as it is. <clears throat> I would have expected it to come earlier. Uh, expected it because of contradictory forces. Uh, There's uh, a lot to like in the economy, frankly. There's so much cash around, so much cash in the sidelines. That's the good news. The bad news is that a lot of it's counterfeit. Uh, You know, it it didn't come out of the economy, but rather it came out of a printing press or more properly out of keystrokes. It's always amusing to me that people, uh, when the market is an uptrend, people don't refer to it as volatility. They refer to it as increases. <laughs> when the market flirts with the red side, it's all of a sudden volatility. It's all of a sudden a very bad thing. That tells you something uh, about the commitment that people have uh, to their stocks. If people thought that the companies were attractive to buy, they would be welcoming them going lower in price so that they could acquire assets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. If investors by and large had the courage of their convictions, they would look at share market declines as a good thing. The same way that I look at declines in the gold and silver price as a good thing. If you'd like to buy them, you want to see them lower as opposed to higher. So partly I see this volatility as a function of the pe- of the fact that people are uncertain as to the value of the things that they have been taught to buy on dips. Certainly the monetary circumstance is confusing and I can understand why people would be nervous about it. On the one hand, the economy is nominally in good shape uh, with jobs growth fairly high. And as I say, all kinds of cash on the sidelines. And I think the Fed would very much like to raise the interest rates, like to merely because uh, I think they think it's highly likely that in an economic slowdown, the only tool that they have left in their arsenal 
uh, is lowering the interest rates. And you can't lower the interest rates from zero, <laughs> you know, from yep. a low base. The problem with that is, uh, and we've seen it with regard to the lack of faith in the equities markets, uh, if you raise interest rates, you hurt the bond market and, and you wound the equity market uh, and you run the risk of hurting the broad economy. <clears throat> One of the things that uh, has occurred to me, Craig, and I think it would be useful stats for your listeners, is if interest rates were to return to their 40-year means, uh, the interest rate would have to go much, much, much higher. Uh, the U.S. 10-year Treasury traditionally has traded at a premium to the underlying rate of inflation, which is to say it has had a real rate of return. If you believe the government statistics that suggests that the uh, the rate of deterioration of the U.S. dollar at the consumer level is 6.5%, the arithmetic around the U.S. 10-year treasury is it yields 1.6 or 1.7. If it reverted to mean, it would have to yield 7. Right. So, Craig, your listeners have to think about the impact on the U.S. economy if the interest carry for the federal government, state and local governments, or for the $14 trillion in household debts was to quadruple. Just as interestingly, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate traditionally has sold uh, at a yield that was at a premium to the 10-year treasury. So if the treasury had to go to seven, the 30-year fixed would have to go to seven or eight. Uh, imagine the impact on first-time home buyers if the interest rate on the 30-year treasury doubled or tripled. So the point of all this is simply that while I think they'd like to raise interest rates, they are going to have to be extremely careful about it. And my suspicion is, like they have for the last 30 years, at the first signs of distress, uh, I think they'll have to back off and lower them again. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's funny, as you mentioned it, Rick, I'm laughing to myself thinking, I don't think I can ever recall a CNBC special about markets in turmoil because they went up 5% in five days. That doesn't seem right. It's a good point. And let's, let's not blame CNBC, in fact. Let's blame the people who watch CNBC and investors who don't have either the knowledge or the courage or their convictions. If, yeah. CNBC, if CNBC thought there was a lot of money uh, or a lot of legitimacy for their advertisers in telling the truth, for sure they would. It's yeah. the market that's dictating that behavior. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let me ask you this, Rick. You, you, you talk about uh, inflation and, and real rates of return. One of the things that confounded me and, and pretty much everybody in this space over the last 15 months is that that long-term relationship between gold prices and real interest rates has been, I don't want to say broken, but maybe uh, discorrelated, put on hold temporarily. Uh, we've got, is, is it because the market has believed and continues to believe in this transitory narrative that sharply negative real rates like high inflation are transitory? Or is there something else going on here? I think if you look at history, uh, you can understand this fairly well. Uh, as you know, Craig, I frequently refer to the Barron's Gold Mining Index, which is an equity index that goes back 60 years. Uh, and what you'll see is <clears throat> that, as an example, in the period 1968, 1969 to about 1974, there was a real lag uh, between uh, perceptions of inflation and inflation statistics and investor action. 
1975, when the interest rate rose, that was in fact transitory, but the gold price fell from $200 to $100 an ounce. The, the fact that uh, the real interest rates were sharply negative didn't make much of a difference on investor perceptions. The same thing happened in the 1999-2002 period, despite the fact that we saw a really ugly deterioration uh, in real yields. It took two or three years for the gold price to react. I think investor perceptions, Craig, have been shaped by the last their experiences in the last 40 years where overall the interest yield on the US 10-year treasury fell from 15.6 to a low of one uh, and now sort of 1.6. These have been very, very, very benign times that we've enjoyed. This is uh, certainly the longest and most dramatic bull market in bonds in my lifetime. But I believe that that 40-year benign period is over. Uh, I I believe that we're in for change. And I believe that Uh, people's actions will respond to the perceptions uh, after we have undone the expectation of a continuation of a benign climate. People who were concerned about inflation in the period of the 80s and the 90s in particular were flat wrong. Uh, We enjoyed the aftermath of ultra high interest rates and the cleansing that that caused in terms of inflationary expectation. But we also enjoyed benefits from technology and productivity and tremendous uh, uh, benefits from uh, global trade and expansion. We enjoyed benefits too from the relatively smaller growth of government relative to the economy. All of those trends have turned around. Uh, So for better or for worse, we're gonna have to unlearn the behavior that we've learned over the last 40 years and adjust ourselves to a new reality. But that takes time. People's expectation of the future is set by their experience in the immediate past and their experience for the last 40 years. Granted, there have been some punctuations like 2008, (laughs) but people's experience in the immediate past is fairly benign. Even in those punctuations where the equity indexes fell by 50%, uh, those declines were undone over time. And so I really believe that a whole bunch of people around the world are going to have to relearn some old lessons. Well, yeah, I would imagine that's right. And the Fed themselves have always admitted that any policy moves they make, like raising the Fed funds rate, takes at least six, nine months to have any impact. Now, maybe perceptions change quicker uh, here in the 21st century than they used to. But nonetheless, I would think that those inflation expectations are going to have some more time to get rooted in the months ahead. And, and I guess that'd be my, if we talk this kind of macro stuff, Rick, that would be my last question for you. I mentioned the FOMC meeting as we speak and the, uh, the latest headlines in the press conference coming on Wednesday. Um, to me, this feels a lot like the same plate spinning charade that they pulled in 2009 coming out of the first QE where they said that was just a one-off. That was, you know, that was never, you know, that wasn't debt monetization and all that kind of stuff. And then by 2010 here, here came QE2. Or, you know, you got to this time in 2018 when they'd run off $700 billion or so from the balance sheet over the last five years and got the tenure and over 3%. And so the stock market fell 20% in 20 days. And you got the, what's now called the Powell pivot. Are we in that sort of, uh, I guess, uh, landscape? again as 2022 begins? This would be a wonderful time to find out. 
there is a lot of debt, but there's an awful lot of cash in the sidelines. And I think that the economy could take higher interest rates, uh, although it would be painful uh, to many. It would probably be useful for our society if investors came to understand uh, that they weren't entitled to unending bull markets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, unfortunately, for the very large institutional investors, the circumstance that they find themselves in is almost untenable. Uh, imagine yourself uh, running a very large endowment or a very large pension fund. You're responsible for the well-being of retire retirees mm -hmm. 30 years from now. Imagine yourself running the traditional institutional portfolio of the last 40 years, which is 60% equity, 40% debt. Uh, the debt allegedly doing well in tougher times, uh, the equity in better times, the debt being the guaranteed yield, uh, the safe return. Imagine yourself uh, coming to understand that 40% of your portfolio is yielding a negative real rate of return, which is to say that 40% of your portfolio, that part of the portfolio which you are hoping is the bedrock of your beneficiaries' retirements, is costing them 4 or 5% of their purchasing power compounded over time. And now imagine that you have to rebalance a portfolio away from its bedrock to overcome the deterioration in value of 40% of your portfolio. How do you do it? Precisely. <laughs> I'm delighted, frankly, uh, that I'm not a Fed governor. And I'm delighted, too, that I'm not running Norges Bank or the Stanford University Endowment or, you know, <laughs> Teachers Investment and Annuity. Uh, these people find themselves, I think, or are going to find themselves in a very, very, very difficult position. It's good to be an old guy, Rick. We don't have to worry about that stuff. Let somebody else worry about it. Uh, how true. How true. <laughs> how true. All right. Now, ever since uh, Sprout Money put out that you were going to be the guest this month, we did take some questions. Uh, as we kind of move into the latter stages of this podcast, you mind if I hit you with a few? I'd be delighted. Thank you. Um, some folks want to know about, you know, you've been a proponent of uranium uh, and, 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 and deservedly so and rightfully so. And, and, I, and even I have benefited from you turning me on to, you know, how that market has turned in the last whatever, 12 months. Um, you know, there's this movement now uh, to consider nuclear as sustainable and green energy and that sort of thing. And obviously silver factors into that equation too. Um, can you address the two of those and your, just your current thoughts on both uranium and silver, but also mainly kind of from that green energy, you know, electric car environmental perspective? Yeah, happily. Uh, I have to say that's three different questions, but I'll try to address I suppose, them. That's true. Uh, I'll yeah. try to address it sequentially. Okay. Uh, I think uh, irrespective of people's prejudices that nuclear is an important part of our future. When I say ours, I don't just mean the United States and Canada. I'm talking about the entire world. Uh, it is uh, the most efficient form of baseload energy relative to the amount of nuclear fuel that is required to generate a given amount of electricity. So countries that are net fuel importers, uh, countries like Korea, Japan, China, Taiwan, uh, but also uh, including companies like uh, countries like India and increasingly in continental Europe, will have to uh, use more nuclear power if they have any hope of meeting their carbon protocol pledges. They have no second choice. 
uh, as an investment theme, uh, what is attractive about uranium to me and has been the reason I've been harping on it in your show for three years is the fact that on a global basis, the incentive price to bring new uranium supplies online is about $60, $60 a pound. And by the way, that number is increasing rapidly with supply chain inflation and social rents, taxes and royalties. So the industry is making the stuff for 60 and they're selling it for 45, yeah. which is to say that the industry is in liquidation. The only way that the world is going to enjoy sufficient baseload energy, particularly sufficient baseload energy that isn't carbon generating, is to increase, not decrease, the supplies of uranium. Now, uh, about eight months ago or nine months ago, that narrative uh, came to be more broadly accepted by the investors. And unfortunately for those same investors, uh, they embraced that narrative with too much enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. And the equity indexes around uranium rose much more rapidly than the uranium price. Uh, to the point where probably eight months ago, I turned bearish on the uranium equities, not because I didn't think that the uranium price would go up, but rather because the equity indexes had discounted higher uranium prices. Then three things happened, Craig. Uh, the first was that uh, our namesake organization, uh, Sprott, a different part of Sprott, but one still of Eric's making, uh, took over Uranium Participation Corp., renamed it the Sprott Physical Uranium uh, Trust, uh, raised well over a billion dollars uh, and bought a substantial amount of the overhang, the surplus inventory in the spot market. There's a joke now that the spot market in terms of liquidity uh, is actually the Sprott market. Right. Uh, and that was a useful thing. The second thing that happened is that the winds of political change around green energy began to blow in Japan. Uh, I've been saying for years that the price of uranium would begin to recover as the pace of Japanese restarts picked up. Uh, and the Japanese government now has between 18 and 20 of their existing plants in for permits for restart. Uh, finally, after five or six years, beginning to be with the assent of the Japanese voter. Uh, what that means is that a substantial amount of inventory, uh, which has been sort of nebulous, sort of hold, held for sale post Fukushima, comes off the market and begins to be consumed again. The third thing that happened, Craig, <clears throat> is that the uranium stocks, as measured by uh, the ETFs, uh, have fallen by 42% from their highs. So at the same time that the outlook has become more attractive for uranium, and the timeline to a turn in the uranium price has shortened, the stocks have fallen in price. That's a wonderful set of circumstances. I made my first new allocation to the sector last week. I was rewarded for my genius by the sector immediately falling. <laughs> uh, and I intend to make uh, a second installment on my uh, increasing my position in the uranium equities uh, in the coming week. Uh, whether or not the uranium market continues, the uranium equities continue to fall, I think is a matter of perception. I think in the three-year time frame that the price of uranium will likely break through $70. And I think that a, a well-composed uranium portfolio, uranium equities portfolio, in the two to, year, two to three year time frame will double or triple with some stocks doing better than that. I need to say, Craig, since you've given me the opportunity that I'm excited enough about this, that uh, Rural Investment Media is doing uh, a six hour online symposium called Uranium Bootcamp uh, 
on on March 19th. And at the end of this interview, I'll give people a a web address where they can get information about that. We'll be having uh, spokespeople from Kazatomprom, the largest uranium producer in the world, Cameco, the largest producer in North America, and China General Nuclear, uh, the China General Nuclear people talking about the Chinese outlook on the uranium price, which I think will be very, very, very useful. I'm very excited about uranium. So thank you for the inadvertent ability for me to do a commercial for my uh, uh, hey. uranium summit. Rick, Moving on. The more information, ahead, the more information, the better. Uh, so Great. I'm glad you're able to work that in. Great. Uh, on the silver side, the, that's an interesting question too. And I'm delighted that you asked it from the, the sort of environmental and green perspective. The uh, A lot of people don't understand the utility of silver in microcircuitry and microelectronic applications. The durability of silver, the conductivity of silver, the malleability of silver, that means that it has literally thousands of microelectronic applications. And as both electric vehicles and conventional vehicles begin to rely more on uh, electric locomotion, uh, but also electric intelligence, the demand for silver in all kinds of vehicles, not merely electric, continues. The other thing or things I think that uh, people need to understand about silver with regards to the green economy is that the uh, reflectivity of silver makes it, uh, if you will, the critical component in solar panels. And Mm -hmm. to the extent that the world has decided to become more reliant on solar energy, uh, there will be, uh, I think, a continued increase in demand for silver for that. The other thing that many people don't understand, Craig, is uh, silver's incredible properties as a germicide. Uh, right. There are increasing uses of silver, not only in micro uh, germicidal applications like wound treatment, uh, eye treatment, body treatment, but more importantly, in terms of the tonnage of silver consumed in water and pollution control treatment, where uh, one of the primary germicides in uh, tertiary treatment plants is in fact silver. So the silver applications, the industrial applications of silver in the green economy, uh, I think are very, very misunderstood and uh, misstated. I think too, Craig, uh, and again, I'll refer to the Barron's Gold Mining Index. If you look back at the uptake of silver uh, as an investment medium, which is to say as a medium of exchange or as money, uh, in my experience over 45 years, Uh, Silver is a second half mover in a precious metals bull market. The first half, maybe even the first two thirds of a precious metals bull market are generally dominated by gold. When the momentum has been established by gold, silver, because of its uh, heightened volatility, uh, but also frankly, its lower unit cost, uh, means that in my experience, Uh, Silver leads gold in the second half, or at least in the third third uh, of a precious metals bull market. If past is prologue, uh, depending on when you believe that the precious metals bull market that we're in now uh, started, uh, what that means is that, you know, we may be a year away, we may be two years away from the period of time when not as an industrial material, but rather as a monetary material, Uh, silver begins to really shine. And as we've talked about before, 
the most volatile asset class in the precious metals business that I'm aware of are the high quality silver equities. Um, when silver moves, if the generalist investor comes into the space, uh, the amount of money that the generalist investor traditionally has brought to bear uh, on the silver market when the narrative is strong is greater than the ability of the market capitalization of the silver companies to accept it. Yep. Uh, I'm not saying that that's going to happen this time, uh, but it is something that I'm personally, as a speculator, betting on. And, and it moves so quickly. Again, I yes. mean, silver went sideways for seven years and then moved up $10 in three weeks. Correct. Uh, precious metals generally do that. They punish you for extended periods of time, and then they reward you extravagantly over fairly, fairly small periods of time. And if yeah. you're not in place, uh, if, if, if you're not enduring the agony uh, uh, of the time when they're not rewarding you, you generally miss the reward when it comes. Right. right. Rick, let's just uh, hit maybe a couple other questions in our time remaining. Um, and I want to thank everybody for sending them in. You can always submit questions through just the email address submissions at SprottMoney.com whenever we have a guest for these programs. Um, here's kind of a good general question about the shares, Rick. Is, is it in your experience that when an explorer has multiple projects, and there's certainly no shortage of those kind of companies out there, and one is really advanced and ready for a takeover, but the other projects are still getting drilled and permitted, does a major come in and buy the entire company? Or will you know, major maybe just buy a specific project out from, from under that company? It's difficult to come with a one-size-fits-all yep. <clears throat> answer to that. What, what we should know from human behavior is that the management team of the company that is being taken over would like continued employment. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. to the extent that a company has four or five projects, and to the extent that the major's interest is focused around one, very often as part of a takeover, there will be a spin out of one or more assets or cash so that the departing management team can continue to be employed. <laughs> uh, I know that sounds fairly cynical, uh, but it's true. Uh, there probably isn't an economic reason for this other than the economic well-being of the departing management team and to facilitate a transaction. But human behavior suggests that the uh, return on capital employed that interest management most is the return on their own employment. Uh, and the fact that there is a corpse, if you will, for them to manage and continue to draw salary and emolument from is often an important part of facilitating a transaction. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. All right, well, let me ask you one about a specific company. There are obviously a lot of companies that uh, you invest in and keep your eyes on. But uh, one, we got a couple of questions on asking you for to comment. Is a company I don't know much about, but it's called Philo Mining. Um, can you maybe address what's been going on there and your interest in that? Yeah, I love it. Uh, Philo Mining uh, is uh, a company that's in the Lundin stable of companies the Lundins being one of the most successful mine financiers of the last 40 years. It was spun out of an exploration vehicle called Jose Maria Resources. Uh, it is exploring in the very high Andes. By high, I mean 4,000 meters plus uh, in Argentina. Uh, and I would suggest that ultimately both Jose Maria uh, and Filo will be mines. Uh, that's a fairly aggressive statement because there's a lot of things wrong with the deposits. First of all, mining at 4,000 meters, uh, almost 16,000 feet, 
is a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Uh, the second is that uh, the history of Argentina is not a history of good government or fiscal stability. And it's a place where you would invest five or six billion dollars to build a very large mine only haltingly. The attraction of Jose Maria and Filo is that they have discovered truly gigantic mineral deposits. Uh, mineral deposits that, while they might not make it even to a production decision in the next uh, two or three years, uh, will become important uh, copper, gold, silver producers, and I think will be uh, taken over in time. It's interesting to note that the Lundines uh, took back total control of Jose Maria very recently, or at least have announced their intention to do that in their namesake operating mining company, uh, which is Lundine Mines. And my personal gut feeling is that ultimately they will reabsorb Philo back into Lundine too. Uh, the uh, proximity of Jose Maria Tefilo suggests that there could be synergies building these very large mines simultaneously. When I say very large, we're talking about upfront capital expenditures in the billions. And to the extent that you could combine uh, infrastructure or other technologies, <laughs> saving a billion here and a billion there, um, that would be a very good thing. Now, this, yeah. is, this is speculation on my part. But what isn't speculation is that both Jose Maria and Philo now have made what are potentially tier one discoveries, which is to say discoveries of global significance that we'll be producing for decades. The downside is that the negotiations with the Argentine government will be torturous. Uh, these mines are located in llama pasture. Uh, way, way, way back and beyond and very, very, very high. But the good news is that they're gigantic and rich. Well, if the metal's there, sometimes you just got to go get it. Yep, correct. Well, now, Rick, in the past, uh, you've been very generous uh, to the listeners in offering just your own personal opinion of, of some of their holdings. Uh, we did get some other questions, but we're kind of out of time. So is that something you can offer again when somebody emails you uh, their top 10 holdings or something like that? Uh, I can. Uh, with your indulgence, I have a variety of offers to make. Please, uh, here. go right ahead. Uh, the first is, uh, as always, if you care about my thoughts around natural resources specific to your portfolio, I'm happy to share them. Any of your listeners who go to a website, uh, ruleinvestmentmedia.com and enter their natural resource stocks. Please, by the way, no technology stocks, please, no pot stocks, please, no cryptocurrencies. Keep me to what I understand. I'll rank those stocks one to 10 and I'll make comments on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. If you care about uh, sort of an illustrative depiction of natural resource and precious metals markets, in the question and comments section at Rule Investment Media, say charts. And I'll send you the Barron's Gold Mining Index. Uh, and I'll also send the Goldman Sachs uh, uh, Century Commodity Index, which shows just how cheap commodities are relative to other asset classes going back 100 years. Uh, if you care about the uranium uh, market, mention Uranium Boot Camp or just Boot Camp. And I'll send you information on how to uh, attend our six-hour webinar on uranium investment. 
finally, in fact, two more offers. Uh, the first is that my old friend Frank Trotter and I, Frank being the founder of Everbank, something that many of your listeners will remember with fondness, are starting uh, a new bank uh, focused to some measure on precious metals. Hmm. Anybody who cares about this bank, borrowing against their physical precious metals as an example, uh, but also lending to natural resource-based businesses uh, and uh, deposit products denominated in precious metals uh, and uh, foreign currencies and equity indexes should in the question and comment section mark bank. Finally, uh, as a consequence of my being retired, uh, I learned that I have a fair amount of commercial freedom of speech. Uh, any of your listeners who care about what I'm doing with my own money in the private placement space, this is only for uh, accredited investors. If you write placements, I will distribute to you free, at least for the time being, uh, notification of any private placement I'm doing with my own money. Uh, it used to be that I couldn't do this because it was regarded as a solicitation. But since I'm no longer a stockbroker and I don't right. make any money at it, and I'm doing it for free. This is simply commercial freedom of speech. So if you are an accredited investor and you want notifications, not of every private placement that comes uh, out of the universe that I'm familiar with, but rather every private placement where I'm writing a check myself, uh, note placement in either the question or the comment section at Rural Investment Media. So rankings, chart, bootcamp, bank, and placements, uh, any and all. Rick, you, I got to tell you, you are so incredibly generous, not only with the sharing of your experience and in, in, in the wisdom you've gained, but the sharing of your time coming on these programs with us. It's brought money and, uh, and helping people kind of see the way. I, that's just tremendous that you would offer that. Thank you so much. Well, it's a huge pleasure for me. This is my idea of retirement, uh, meaning I work hard, but I don't do anything at all that's unpleasant for me. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and again, thank you so much for sharing that. And, and again, I, please, everybody, please thank Sprott Money for sharing this information with you. Uh, you can like, subscribe, share this information on whichever channel you're on. But of course, Sprott Money is a bullion dealer, too. So keep them in mind for your physical precious metal purchases and for storing that metal too. And I mean, I mentioned the stock market going all over the board these first couple of weeks of 2022. I mean, it's always a good time to consider precious metals, but maybe in particular now you can get the best price if you make sure you do your homework, but you'll find Sprott money prices are hard to beat. So you can buy them directly online through SprottMoney.com. But if you have any questions, and you want to talk to a human being, always give Sprott Money a call too. 888-861-0775. And someone will be on the line and happy to help you out with any questions that you have. So again, uh, thanks to Sprott Money for putting this information out there. And thanks, a massive thanks really to Rick Rule for all you do for the precious metals community and for offering uh, all your expertise uh, and be willing to share it. Thank you, Rick. Greg, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I enjoy participating in anything named Sprott. It, 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 and, and we love having you on too. I know that. And from all of us here at Sprott Money News, SprottMoney.com. Thank you for listening. We'll have another monthly wrap-up segment in February.